Welcome back to The Horse Race, your weekly look at politics, policy, and elections in Massachusetts. I'm Jennifer Smith, and I'm here with my beloved co-host, Stephanie Murray. And today we are bringing you more 2020 general elections to keep an eye on, but we will also be talking about 2021 too, because Michelle Wu has announced her run for Boston mayor. Stephanie, are you ready to spend your next year on this? We are living in the future. The 2020 presidential election has not happened, but we are looking beyond it. We are looking to 2021 because the mayor's race is taking shape. You might even say it's in full force. Oh, help us. So we'll get to that a little bit later on. First, though, we do have to talk uh, about something kind of sad and also important in Massachusetts this week, which is Ralph Gantz, the Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, died suddenly at age 65. He had had a heart attack but was believed to have recovered and then died tragically. For one thing, this really shook up the Massachusetts legal community because Gantz was appointed by Governor Deval Patrick. He was the first Jewish chief justice on the court and really an advocate for racial justice as well. A notable ruling that you might recall in 2016 was really interesting because it held that there were legitimate reasons for black men to flee the police. So fleeing itself couldn't be considered suspicious. And that year in 2016, Gantz personally asked Harvard to explore racial inequities in the Massachusetts criminal criminal justice system. That might sound familiar because this year that report came out and it confirmed that people of color are treated unequally by the system. But there are, as always, other political levels here because with Gantz's death and Justice Barbara Lenk's planned retirement in December, Governor Charlie Baker will get to make two more appointments to the state's highest court. So Stephanie, you want to walk us through why that matters? Sure. This is a very, very big deal uh, because Governor Baker is just uh, six years in as governor of Massachusetts, and it's likely that he will have appointed the entire bench of the state's highest court. Um, and the court is about to consider the constitutionality of all of his executive orders that have to do with the pandemic. Um, another thing to look out for here is that with just six justices on the court now, uh, before somebody else gets appointed, we could have split rulings. And I was looking through the Boston Globe had a great story about this and kind of all the implications of what is going to happen with the SJC. And the only other governor to have appointed the entire court was John Hancock, who was the first and third governor of Massachusetts. Um, yes, so this is pretty unprecedented. Um, governor Francis Sargent, uh, who was governor a little over 50 years ago, had appointed, I believe it was six, according to the Globe, but Baker will make history if he does appoint seven, which seems to be what will happen. Yeah. And the one thing that I'd like to add on this one is obviously progressive groups have been saying that by losing Lenk and losing Gantz, there's a very good reason to make sure that he's appointing someone uh, more progressive or at least diverse in a way that's reflective of other communities than just white men um, to the court again. So we will see how that shakes out, but we'll keep an eye on it. Yes, we will. But Jen, I have to ask you, why are we here today? We're here because we have to be, Stephanie, and also because we have to talk about 2021. A GBH Massink polling group survey is out today on Boston residents' opinions on mayoral candidates. So Steve is going to break down what those results mean. And then we're going to be joined by BFF of the Pod, Statehouse News Service reporter Katie Lannon to talk to us about the year's extended legislative session. And uh, we ask her, with all this extra time tacked on, has the state legislature been using it effectively? Then what are we doing? 
Then we have Matt Safransky of the Western Mass Politics and Insight blog to talk about what is going on in Western Massachusetts. We have a stacked pod for you today, so I think we've got to get to it. Are you ready, Jen? Let's go. official. Boston City Councilor Michelle Wu has thrown her hat into the ring for the Boston 2020 mayoral race. Uh, She's running on a platform of affordable housing, transportation, public health, and a citywide Green New Deal. Uh, There's plenty of speculation already about how the race will shake out, and we have some new numbers. A poll from GBH and the Mass Inc. polling group took the temperature of Boston voters on Wu, the current mayor, uh, Marty Walsh, and a few other potential candidates. So to help us understand what the landscape looks like before the race really begins is president of the Mass Inc. polling group and... Brigadier General of Beantown Battles, Steve Cazella. Steve, it is excellent to see you in the guest chair today. Uh, so uh, I've always <laughs> wanted to be a Brigadier General of something. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start um, with the scope of the survey. Can you just tell us who you polled and how you did it? Sure. So this was a poll of registered voters of Boston. So one of the questions, of course, looking ahead to next year is who will actually turn out to vote, who is a likely voter and so forth. And you'll see pollsters grappling with that as next year rolls along. Um, God willing that we ever get there. But for this poll, it's registered voters. So it's any voter in Boston. And the poll is weighted to represent the entirety of the registered voter population in the city of Boston. So we didn't have to make decisions, for instance, about how to figure out how many young people might vote or how many people of color might vote or from certain neighborhoods or something like that. This is just all registered voters. So what is the impact there when you're looking at some kind of polling this early in the race to start considering some of the potential demographic issues that we're likely going to face? You mentioned, of course, that this is just registered voters in Boston, so it's kind of an overarching look. But I mean, depending on how this race unfolds, maybe someone like Councillor Andrea Campbell comes in and seeing as the only wards that Walsh lost in 2017 were in Roxbury, this could come down to an issue of voting demographics. So how do you think about that this early in the race? Yeah, absolutely. It, it could. And I think it, we could even go further and say that it will come down to, to that. You know, it'll come down to how many young people vote and assuming that they choose one candidate strongly over another, as we've seen, you know, in Presley versus Capuano, for instance, or in Markey versus Kennedy recently, there have been these big, big margins among young people. So how many of them turn out in September municipal prelim? No one knows yet, for instance. So that certainly will make a difference. And what other candidates get in? Jen, you touched on, of course, the other big issue, which is um, we polled uh, Marty Walsh, Michelle Wu, and Andrea Campbell. That may be the field. There may be others. There may be many others. It, Campbell may not run. You know, she's not officially in at this point. So it really could be, there could be a range of scenarios that would make a difference, both in terms of the candidates as well as in terms of uh, demographics and turnout. So we found in this poll that Marty Walsh starts off with a pretty considerable lead. You know, he's got a lead of 46% um, to Michelle Wu's 23%. So Certainly, you know, I don't think that's a surprise necessarily as to where it would be right now. Marty Walsh is an incumbent. He's been very popular. He is very popular. Um, But that's that, you know, that's where the race starts off. Michelle Wu is also quite well liked. You know, when you look at the people who have heard of her, many more of them have a favorable than unfavorable view of her. So basically, you've got two well liked candidates. One's better known. And one, you know, is obviously an incumbent. So that that's kind of what where the race starts, starts off. And what about Boston City Councilor Andrea Campbell? I, did you guys pull her? 
Yeah, we included her as well in the matchup, and we found 4% said that they would support Andrea Campbell. Um, she's less well-known. Um, again, well-liked, you know, among the smaller slice of Boston, Boston voters who have heard of her, 20% said they view her favorably, 9% unfavorably. But you can just quickly do the math in your head, and that's 71% who either said they'd never heard of her, they'd heard of her but didn't really have a view, or didn't answer the question. You know, those same numbers for Marty Walsh, that's only 9% of voters fit into one of those categories. And for uh, Michelle Wu, that's 37%. So basically, Andrea Campbell has more ground to make up just in terms of introducing herself to voters who may not pay, have been paying as close attention. You know, Michelle Wu has been the top citywide vote getter a couple times and has built a lot more name recognition, not at the level of Marty Walsh. You know, she's not the mayor. She doesn't have that kind of machine behind her, um, but more so than Andrea Campbell has at this point. So the folks that you were polling, did they indicate strong preferences for the candidates that they were supporting? Uh, I noticed on, you know, back of the hand math that those numbers did not add up to 100%. So of the folks who are either, uh, see, I'm very good at this. I did great in stats in college. That makes <laughs> one of us. <laughs> so so of, the, of the folks who are undecided, um, do they feel favorably about these candidates? And even the ones who are saying, I'll vote for Walsh, I'll vote for Wu, I'll vote for Cam. I'll vote for someone else. Are they committed? Was that something that you asked? Uh, we didn't ask in exactly that way, but I think that even without asking, we can say the answer is probably no at this point, um, you know, just because there are so many that haven't heard of the other candidates that are running. You know, we can think of recent history and just see where, you know, Stephanie, you reported and from our polling about young people learning about Ed Markey in the year that he was running to be reelected for Senate. You think about 2018 and Ayanna Presley, sort of the summer of 2018, when young people both, honestly, around the country and in Boston and surrounding areas learned about Ayanna Presley, became likely voters, became her supporters. You know, so I think there's, even without asking, we can say there's certainly move, the possibility of movement within these numbers. Now, of course, incumbents win. They win a lot. They won everything this year, pretty much, with the exception of a couple of legislative seats. And it's been a long time since anybody knocked off an incumbent mayor of Boston. So the hill to climb is certainly steep. Assuming, of course, that Marty Walsh chooses to run for re-election, which is another thing that he hasn't said necessarily yet. Yeah, I've been thinking about what happened um, a couple weeks ago in the primary versus 2018 and just kind of how the energy in the electorate has shifted. I mean, in 2018, so many progressive candidates, unseated incumbents, um, Presley, of course, was the most famous, and then John Santiago, Nick Aligardo, were a couple of others, um, and that did not happen in 2020. And so, I mean, did... Do you know, like, did you pull what people want in a mayor and does that track with wanting to stick with incumbents or kind of moving towards a more progressive and newer face? I think that's going to be one of the one of the divides that we see in the electorate. We're going to see that there's going to be the, the desire among a certain slice of voters who we're already seeing active on social media, many of whom we know and love, that are very, very interested in the idea of a progressive candidate for mayor. And we're going to see another slice of the electorate who wants stability, wants somebody who's got lifelong Boston roots, you know, and that's, that's, I think, going to be one of the lines along which voters divide, you know, that is showing up a little bit in the polling already that we're seeing. And not surprisingly, for instance, looking at supporters of Michelle Wu, 57% of them say it's very important that the mayor, their mayoral candidate is a progressive. And that's much higher than the 44% of Marty Walsh supporters who say the same thing. Then you look down to 
okay, well, how about a mayoral candidate who grew up in Boston and twice as many Marty Walsh supporters say that's important. So I do think that there's probably going to be a division there. Um, exactly what shape it takes, that's, that's a really interesting question. Exactly what shape the progressive coalition takes, is it more of an Ed Markey shape? Is it more of a Bernie Sanders shape? Is it a whole new shape? You know, as, as you pointed out, Stephanie, it's not like that there's been an, a perfect rhythm to these things. You know, every, every election is different. Every coalition is different. Um, but there's also the other thing that's going to be really interesting is watching what black voters in Boston do. Um, because of course, looking further back, they're who put Marty Walsh in office in the first place back in 2013. You know, we all remember that very regionalized map between Marty Walsh and John Connolly in the, in the final in 2013. So does that persist? It seems like it in this early poll, like it is at this point. But again, there's a long way to go and a lot of competition and a lot of talking to voters and things that will happen between now and then. And personal characteristics of a mayoral candidate aside, uh, did you poll on what particular issues at the, are at the top of voters' minds right now as they start to think about the direction of the city? Yes, we basically just asked them to name their top issue and found, I think, to no one's surprise that COVID coronavirus is by far the number one issue. Um, 39% of voters identified that. The next one was down at 12%, and that was housing costs. So we've done that also back in 2013 and 2017 and found um, when Marty Walsh was first elected, it was education. Then in 2017, it was housing costs. That one's still up there. You know, as we can all say, housing costs have not gone anywhere as an issue. Um, but of course, COVID has, has overtaken everything. Um, and that's the number one issue. So then we also asked, okay, well, how, how's Marty Walsh done at dealing with that? That's something I think that makes the road for challengers harder is that people think he's done a good job. When you ask, how has Marty Walsh done at handling coronavirus and the, the, the COVID outbreak, we see 84% say that they approve of the way that he has handled it. So it's not like there's a big issue and the mayor's fallen down on the job. People think he's done a good job on the major issue. That's not necessarily to say that it's all going to be about the issues. We know it's not all about the issues. Uh, but as, as far as the number one issue, that's how it breaks down. Unfortunately, we've got to leave it there, uh, but we will have an entire year to talk about this in the future, and I'm sure that we will a lot. Uh, so Steve Cazella, president of the Massing Polling Group and our excellent horse race co-host, thanks so much for breaking down these numbers. Good to see you. The state legislature in July extended their legislative session to the end of 2020, even though it usually ends on July 31st. And in doing so, they theoretically freed themselves up to address pressing policy concerns on racial justice, police brutality, climate change, transportation, housing, and health care. It's been a month and a half since that decision. So what do legislators have to show for it so far? To help us answer that question is our BFF of the pod, State House News reporter and bard of Beacon Hill, Katie Lannon. Welcome back, Katie Lannon. <laughs> Thanks, Jen. I'm glad to be here. Um, not really going to go for any sonnets today, though, so I don't know if I'm going to live up to that title of bard. I'm really upset that you're not going to answer in purely iambic pentameter, but we'll just have to live <laughs> with that, I suppose. I guess there's always next time. Next time. So last time you were here, we touched on this a bit. So just remind our listeners, what were the top policy priorities on Beacon Hill's agenda when they were extending the deadline for formal sessions? Yeah, you, you kind of ran through a lot of them, but the, the big things are the things that are now kind of in conference committee, which means we don't know the status of the, the legislation, but 
the versions have been passed by both the House and the Senate. There was a, a big push in the in the spring and early summer for legislation to license police officers to create accountability, more accountability, a new system of accountability in policing and address racial justice concerns. There were um, bills that looked to give telehealth a permanent place in the state's healthcare landscape, building on kind of the innovations forced during the, the pandemic. There is a transportation bond bill worth, you know, somewhere between 17 and $18 million. Um, so that's a pretty sizable amount of money. Um, and another one is this major economic development bill that has language in there around all sorts of different things, you know, from sports betting to capping third-party delivery fees for restaurants. So a lot of closely watched items that are, are still kind of hanging out there. So if I'm understanding this right, the legislature gave themselves more time at the end of July, but haven't gotten to any of these things yet. Is that right? They haven't taken up any of these issues? So each of those five issues are bills that have made their way through the legislature. The House and Senate have passed different versions of bills on all of those topics. The The issue is the reconciling of those differences. In a, in a normal year, if negotiations weren't done by July 31st, um, in a normal even-numbered year, I should say, the second year of the session, that would kind of mark the end of the road for that issue. Um, but at this point, because they gave themselves extra time, the, the hope remains alive that they can re- reach a resolution, um, find a compromise, and, and get some of these things done and over to the governor for, for his possible signature. Um, but also for potential Please. vetoes or amendments, it's, it's really, there's a lot left to possibly go through. And sort of getting to the timing of some of these things, one thing that we've mentioned a few times now has been the police reform bill. Uh, there were a lot of questions as the election, specifically the primaries, were sort of rolling through about where the police reform bill was. Uh, Rep. Nika Eliguardo said kind of vaguely that it would come out after the election. So is there a sense on when folks are actually trying to get that bill out? Is it hitting a particular snag? Um, one of the things that happens when a bill goes into a conference committee, these six-member teams of, of legislators, three senators, three representatives who, who negotiate it, is the first thing they do is they vote to close their talks to the public. And normally when you ask them about the status, you get a lot of, um, you know, things said to you like, we're making progress on that, we're still talking, we're coming along, but not a lot of specifics. So there might be some specific issue in there. Um, you know, the House and the Senate took different approaches on, on qualified immunity limits. Um, and that was certainly something a lot of people were talking about as the bill was, was the initial versions were being debated. But you, you never really know what the issue is um, once, a, once a bill is in conference. So do you have a read on when... Uh, we might see more action out of the legislature. Is it going to happen soon now that the summer is over, sadly, um, and everybody's kind of back, uh, the primary is over? And then my second question is, when will the legislature start running out of time again? Like when or what week or what month or whatever will be kind of that crunch time that we usually see at the end of July? 
Okay, well, first of all, I refuse to accept that the summer's over. I have five days left. Don't take that away from me prematurely. <laughs> um, but it's true. It's, you know, the the August is usually a, a recess period for the legislature. They, they kind of pull back on formal sessions anyways and, and meet in informal sessions where you see a lot of local bills um, instead of these kind of major statewide policy issues, things like age requirements for for firefighters in a particular town or affordable housing developments. And those things are important, but and they're moving along, but they're not those same kind of wide-ranging issues that we've been talking about. And now that we are in September and, you know, approaching fall, I'll say, um, it there is a, a more of a, a chance that they might start those formal sessions back up again. The the really big thing that kind the other thing that I can't believe I didn't mention earlier that remains on the legislature's plate is the state budget. We don't have one for the full year. Um, we've got a a temporary budget in place that runs through the end of October. So sometime before the end of October, we're gonna have to see some some action on that front, whether they'll be ready to do a, a budget for the rest of the fiscal year. I don't know. They're waiting for the, the federal government to whatever it is the federal government needs to do to reach some sort of agreement on a maybe another stimulus bill, aid to municipal and state governments, things like that. So if we if we see that before the election, then there's a better chance maybe that we'll see the legislature at the state level in budget mode before the election. And you, you raise a really interesting point, Stephanie, about the kind of forthcoming time crunch. There's going to be one, right? Um, there always is. It's human nature to, to work at a deadline. The session's going to end in early January. Um, and in that time, there ha- there should be a state budget debate of some kind. There you know, are these five other bills in conference committee. There's still a pandemic going on that there might need to be some more state-level responses to. Um, Speaker DeLeo yesterday mentioned he wants to take up a a bill addressing uh, sexual violence on college campuses before the end of the year. And if you start working backwards from, what, the first Wednesday in January, you get the holiday season, which is often light at the State House because people want to spend holiday time with their families. Thanksgiving through, you know, New Year's really (laughs) is often quieter. And you really, it is, even though we've got months, if they're meeting once a week in formal sessions, which we haven't seen picked back up yet, that's not a lot of time to, to get some of these major issues done. That's a really great point. And I think we've got to end it there on, on that very exciting update. I am so excited to have had you on to let us know that almost nothing has changed from the public front since we talked to you last time. All right. Well, Katie Lannon of the Statehouse News Service, thank you so much for joining us from your virtual bunker. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Western Massachusetts saw new leadership emerge this primary season, particularly in Springfield, where two city councilors won seats in the Statehouse. Now, as the general election looms, the 2nd Hamden-Hampshire District is home to a newly contentious race between the sitting Democrat and a Republican businessman. Joining us to talk through all of this is Editor-in-Chief of Western Mass Politics and Insight and purveyor of Pioneer Valley and Beyond, Matt Zafransky. Matt, it's great to see you on the horse race. Oh, great to be here. 
So can you talk a little bit about uh, what's going on in Springfield? I was really interested. You wrote on your blog about kind of how the city's become uh, a political launch pad again in a way that it hasn't been uh, in recent election cycles. Yeah, um, for a long time, like the Springfield City Council was a dead end unless you, you know, tried to be one of the, you know, very few who tried went on to become mayor. Um, And I think part of that was because the Springfield City Council had this perception of itself as like we approve the budget and we approve special permits. And that's not all they that's not really all their power was. That's just what a lot of them thought it was. And in the last 10 years since award representation returned to the city council used to be all at large. Um, there's been a much more of a drive for policy that actually legislation um, in various forms going through the, the council. And I think that's given people who are interested in running for higher office something to actually talk about. I don't think it's you know absolutely essential. We've certainly seen plenty of people that don't have that uh, win you know higher office races that have been open with their senator house. But it's been very helpful for counselors that uh, want to move on up. So will this mean more competitive races for the Springfield City Council, maybe increased turnout, more engagement from voters out there? Well, increased turnout is always hard to say. Um, I mean, we had really great turnout in Springfield in the the primary, but I'm not going to assume there's going to be a pandemic in every election that, you know, forces those kinds of conditions. Um, And we've had some very competitive elections, even against incumbents. I mean, in fact, both the winners of from the primary, Adam Gomez and Orlando Ramos, won their council seats from incumbents. So um, we these competitive races haven't always turned out more people in you know municipal elections, but they have brought uh, very competitive races, and I think there's a good chance that we could see that happen in both wards one and eight, uh, because I don't expect uh, Gomez and Ramos to run for another term in the council. They may finish out their term, and that'll be it. Do you think that um, the kind of renewed conversation and protests around racial justice were part of what drove up turnout in Springfield? I was talking to Tahir Amital Wadud, who ran for Congress in 2018, and she was saying that it the protesting and the activism had just become a lot larger and more visible than it had before. I think it's possible. Um, I mean, the thing is, is that the, the the way that the protest movement had evolved in Springfield was... You know, it was around very specific issues that were involving, uh, you know, reform of the police department and, and criminal justice issues. And there wasn't really a lot of pushback from anybody. Uh, I mean, the, the, you know, you've had a couple of comments from the police commissioner, but for the most part, she was on the same page as the mayor, who was pretty much like, you know, Black Lives Matter. Let's figure out some way we can try to address some of these things. It wasn't, you know, as contentious. So, I mean, I don't, that's not to say that people weren't politically activated by it, but I feel that one of the things that, you know, helped a lot of uh, challengers and other races was that there was a feeling of inertia, a feeling that things weren't changing. And I didn't see the same kind of resistance, you know, from people here, uh, probably because a lot of the, the demands were, you know, very deliverable. I mean, with one major exception being the reinstitution of the police commission. And speaking of contentious, if we turn over to the second Hampton Hampshire District Senate seat, how's that for a segue? Uh, We've got a bit of a rematch coming right now. So what's going on over there, Matt? So um, former State Representative John Velas won a special Senate election, uh, which had been postponed due to the pandemic uh, in May. His opponent was John Kane, a a businessman from Southwick. Um, And now they have to run for the full term in November. And so it, it is a rematch. It'll be interesting because the pan, I mean, the pandemic was really a, it was much, it 
you know, strong, uh, a much bigger, you know, uh, hold on everybody in, in April and May when this election is going on, certainly in March. Um, so it's a little bit more freewheeling. I mean, you know, people are campaigning almost normally now. So it'll be interesting to see if, uh, you know, the, that difference uh, will change the tenor of this race. Uh, as you mentioned, in terms of contentious, there's now this issue that, um, you know, this what happened between May and now is the Pearlstein report dropped on the, the Holyoke Soldiers Home. And there's a line in there, and it's just a line that seems to suggest that Bennett Walsh, was, who was the former superintendent of the soldiers' home there, was encouraged to apply for the job by John Velas. This is not how John Velas characterizes his uh, um, conversation with uh, Bennett Walsh. Uh, John Velas was not interviewed by Mark Pearlstein. Um, but that one line has now turned into a fusillade of uh, criticism from John Kane, um, who, you know, I hate to say it, kind of doesn't have a whole lot else to run against uh, Vilas on this. I mean, Vilas is fr he's a son of Westfield. Westfield is the linchpin of that district. If you win Westfield, I don't know. There's really not a way for the other party to win the district. And I think this is just an attempt by Kane to try to do something, anything to, you know, draw um, Vilas down in Westfield. I don't know what's going to happen in the general, but Vilas won Westfield two to one in May. And that's just an insurmountable lead when you throw in Southampton, East Hampton, Holyoke, which are very, very democratic parts of the district. Matt, do you have a read on whether the criticisms around the Holyoke soldiers' home are sticking to Vilas? And I mean, does the fact that he's a veteran change things or impact that conversation? I think uh, it's, it's hard to say at this point. I think we might get a better sense if uh, the two of them sit down for a debate and, uh, and, and really get you know, a sense of how how seriously uh, Kane is really pushing this. I will say that Vilas is going to be able to have a, a battalion of people who can to say that he's, you know, stood up for veterans issues and people who appreciate the, uh, the, the work that, that, that he's done on behalf of veterans uh, in the article that the, or that other uh, Republican published on this, Stephanie Berry uh, got access to some text messages from the very critics that were in uh, um, John Kane's uh, uh, criticism. Uh, that seemed to suggest that they were not as unhappy at the time or that he did all he could at the time. Um, so, I mean, I, 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 it's early. Um, I think that the issues with the soldier's home are going to be, uh, you know, continue to be discussed uh, going forward, but I'm not really sure that this is gonna, again, you know, pull him down in Westfield. Westfield Westfield's a very interesting place politically, um, uh, not to go too far off the, the track there, but it's a, uh, uh, it's the newest of the pre-war cities in Hampton County. Um, and despite that, you know, normally like cities, you're kind of like, the, you know, the, there's like the coalition politics. You got to assemble everybody together. Westfield's like a big town. And, you know, they, they, that makes a big difference. I remember a few years ago, I was at some event and I ran into an old boss that I had. And I was like, what are you doing here? And she was, are you never interested in politics? She's like, oh, Little League. And it's just strange to think of a city the size of Westfield to have something like that be such a powerful force. And I think in trying to uh, overcome that is very difficult for somebody who does not live in Westfield. So what other trends have you kind of been watching out there in Western Massachusetts? Has there been a trend in folks who have kind of come out on top of some more competitive races that you're sort of looking at as you get ready to see the general hurtling your way and then whatever 2021, 2022 could look like? Well, I mean, the big thing right now is we've actually got three competitive state rep seats out here. Um, Thomas Petrolotti uh, is retiring this year, and uh, Jake Oliveira and Chip Harrington, who are both Ludlow School Committee members, 
are running for this seat. Um, and I would say this is probably the closest thing to a pickup that Republicans have in Western Mass. I mean, there are no other contested races. Um, and let me rephrase that. Vila's seat is also a very uh, possible pickup, um, but uh, that's a you know, there's no incumbent there, and uh, um, it's not the same thing as, as as what's going on in in, in Ludlow because we've been watching that for a long time to see if it would flip. We've no the Westfield seat has flipped back and forth, you know, over the last 10 years. Um, and then Nick Waldiga has a challenger, an Agawam uh, school committee member. Uh, I, I don't know uh, what her chances are. There have been a lot of people that have tried to go up against uh, Nick Waldiga over the years. I mean, he's, you know, he was Trumpy before there was Trump. And uh, it's not a, it's a district that's historically Democrat, but it's not, you know, it hasn't also like really updated its, um, uh, you know, it hasn't really changed with like the suburban movement. You know, it's not as uh, upscale suburban as like Longmeadow is, for example. Um, there's some very nice areas of Southwick and Agawam. I don't want to suggest that it's, you know, a, a dump, but um, it, it's just not demographically the same. So Boldiga has been able to hold on despite, you know, what I would consider to be fairly valid criticisms of his representation over the years. Um, I think that's why he had a primary challenger this year. But interestingly enough, uh, the Baker-aligned uh, mass majority pack supported Boldiga, and then over the line supported the ostensible moderate Republican in that race, uh, Kelly Pease. And uh, I just saw today that uh, his de defeated opponent, Dan Alley, a city councilor there, is going to run a write-in campaign. He just sent a letter to the editor of the Westfield uh, News saying he's not done yet. And... Uh, if I were the Democrat in that race, I would be cheering him on because uh, there isn't ranked choice yet. And I think that, you know, it's going to be hard, not impossible for Democrats to hold that seat. But Matt Garlow is a young guy, you know, first time candidate. You know, Dan Alley could be the gift that keeps on giving in that race for him. So that is plenty for us to watch. We have to leave it there. But thank you so much, Matt. Uh, Matt Sofransky of the Western Mass Politics and Insight blog. Pleasure to see you. Great to be here. And that is all the time we have for this week. I'm Stephanie Murray here with Jennifer Smith. Our wonderful producer is Libby Gormley. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, make sure to sign up for the Politico Massachusetts Playbook if you haven't already. And if you need a poll, you can always call the Massing Polling Group. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.